in the dirt. Wallbeck really doesn't have a Welcome back, and that's a long welcome back. It's April 19th, 2021. It's been a long time since we've seen you all. Welcome back to the Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show presented to you by All-Star Sports. And I want to say this first and foremost, I got some flack today. I posted a, a video on my Instagram account where I was taking this brand new $400 uh, CM3000 SPK by All-Star. I was dunking it into water. Um, and I think we can talk about glove breaking in, but let's welcome in our guest. He is a big league veteran catcher and a former manager, Matt Wallback. Matt spent some time in the Chicago Cubs organization, Minnesota Twins, Detroit Tigers, Anaheim Angels, and the Philadelphia Phillies. We are proud to welcome big league catcher, Matt Wallback. Matt, how are you doing? I'm great, Tyler. Thanks for having me. And Chris, good to see you both. It's a pleasure to have you on here, and um, thank you for coming on. It, like, like I said in my intro, it's been a long time since we've interviewed anybody, so we're excited to learn from you. Um, we, we typically start all of our guests off, Matt, with kind of a rapid-fire drill where we, we just throw random questions at you. We call it a rapid-fire blocking drill. As, as us catchers, we love throwing on the tools of intelligence and getting back there and, and taking a beating, and um, I'm going to kick this off. So as I said, I... I, what, what, what's probably the craziest way you've ever heard somebody break in a mitt? I, I took this from Chris Snooze. He showed me dunking it in the water, and I've get, been getting people that like want to lynch me for dunking a $400 glove into water. Yeah, the craziest way I've seen it is where people will drive over their glove with a car and um, <laughs> you know keep their car on there. And, uh, but there's different ways, you know, dunking it in waters is, is a way that people have used. And I've tried shaving cream and Vaseline and pine tar, um, chewing bubble gum and spitting in, in into it with tobacco juice, a mixture of that. But, <laughs> but the best way I found for me personally is to use Lexol oh, wow. and Lexol. Yeah. Lexol is, is a really good substance. Um, not only for the, for the catcher's mitt, but also for the pitcher because it creates a form of tack on the ball. Oh, wow. And, okay. um, and so it, it kind of does twofold. And I learned that from Charlie O'Brien, who caught Maddox and the guys over there in, in Atlanta back when they were sizzling. And uh, he came over to Anaheim, and, and I saw he was shaking up the Lexol and putting it in his catcher's mitt. I go, what are you doing, man? He goes, oh, it's great. I go, does it weigh it down? He goes, no, it just makes the ball tacky. And so ever since then, I've been using it. And um, wow. Troy Percival liked it so much that he bought, bought a gallon of it for me. <laughs> and I would even put it on in between it. Because, you know, part of being a catcher, part of the, the, the uh, mystique back there and, and having pitchers like to throw to you is making a loud sound when you catch it. Oh, and, and I found with the Lexol, it really it just it makes a big loud pop so uh that that was my go-to and has been ever since you know the last six years of my career absolutely nice. well I, I tell you what i uh 
I've never heard that before, but I'm going to start using that. I'm going to tell all the guys that uh, I train to, to start using Lexol. Yeah, because water yeah, and leather, they that. don't mix. Water and leather don't mix, do they? Right. I mean, well, no, it's, it's the, the, the leather. So I had, a, uh, I had an old coach tell me about that. So I literally will take, add it down to a science. So I would take a, take a brand new glove. I'd put two balls in it. I'd wrap it in a couple um, soccer socks or games, sanitaries, whatever. Dunk it in a bucket of water for 30 seconds. Take it out. Throw it right into the industrial dryers with all the towels for mm. about 30, 40 minutes. So it comes out, it's probably 70% dry. And mm. the other areas, then I would take um, around the, the end of a rounded bat. And I would just beat the hell, I'd lay the glove flat on the ground, uh, laying on the pocket on the web. And then I would just hammer into the pocket. And I would pound that and pound that and pound that. And then I would take out the tools I would tighten up the laces up on top. I would restring the uh, the web to make them instead of crisscrossed. I have them um, basically going up and down, up and down, and then go double them up, so I could have it a little looser. And then I would catch with it, and it was always game ready within like three days. And wow. just from catching bullpens, and the glove actually felt lighter when I did it. So I do it with all my. I've always done that with all my gloves, and. Yeah, you should see the the looks that I got, Tyler, when you know we'd be in the yeah, middle of a season. I'd pull out a glove and I'd dunk it in water. They're like, what are you doing? I go, well, this is, <laughs> this is what I do. You know, huh. if you don't want me to get strikes, then I won't do it. There you go. Very cool. No, I didn't hear. I didn't know about the dryer and the and the towels in there. That that's actually I can kind of see where you're going with that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, and especially if you're only up. keeping it in for thirty seconds. Yeah, right mm -hmm. on. So the, the question I'm going to jump to you then for, uh, for my throw, mm -hmm. for your rookie year in the big leagues. So I uh, had a couple, got a couple mutual acquaintances on that team. Um, but I want to know your rookie year, most of the guys, their first year, um, the rookies are always hazed a little bit. You know, I, I remember stories of guys wearing a Hello Kitty backpack. I did that in Pittsburgh a little bit. Uh, did they have anything, anything that you uh, had to do for your rookie year? No, you know, I had, well, two rookie years. I got called up. I made the team out of spring training with the Cubs in 93 and then got sent back down and then called up back in September. And then I was traded to Minnesota in 94. So I had another rookie season that year. And it was Kirby Puckett, Kent Herbeck, Dave Winfield, Knobloch, Erickson Aguilera. There were some pretty, uh, pretty big players, but they didn't, they didn't do anything that year for the rookie hazing. And that could possibly be because we went on strike in 94 in August. So there was still some time left. So I was probably, I probably had something coming, um, but I got to, I wiggled out of it and being a starting catcher, <laughs> you know, they weren't going to, apparently they chose not to uh, give me too much of a hard time other than some of the crazy stuff I said to the media and just, you know, learning, you know, how not to do certain things. And it, it's, you know, they, they give you enough crap as it is, as far as, you know, behind the scenes, but I never had to get my pants cut or have to wear any, um, any crazy clothes. I thought back, well, I did pre get pretty lucky on that one. I escaped. No, that. no disco outfits on the planes and that. No, nothing like that. <laughs> and um, the twins were kind of a small market club. So, you know, we had the, kind of everybody had to sort of double up and mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff but uh yeah nothing nothing crazy i was pretty fortunate 
no cell phones back then either. So even if they did something, it wouldn't have been uh, all over the media. In fact, they've stopped that. The hazing, I guess they called it the dress up day. That's no longer around. And, um, oh yeah, they, they've stopped, they put a rule in major league baseball and it says you're not allowed to to do that anymore. They used to dress up, some teams would dress up the players in Hooters outfits or, um, you know, (laughs) yeah, Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, stuff like that. And, um, and, and, and a lot of the guys took it in stride and some players didn't particularly care for it very much and, and complained. And the next thing, you know, uh, major league baseball got involved and says, yeah, you can't do that anymore. So there's no longer around no fun league yeah well depends on how you feel about it yeah yeah interesting Matt you had a a long career you caught many pitchers uh I'm always fascinated by who the toughest pitcher it was for you to catch And, and it could have been just either getting on the same page uh in terms of you know calling the game understanding what the pitcher liked to throw in certain situations or it was just he was just that that nasty you have the one that yeah. comes to mind? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it was Steve Sparks, without a doubt. He was a knuckleball pitcher. Okay. And um, if you haven't caught a knuckleball pitcher before, um, you know, that's probably good. But, I mean, having to catch a knuckleball pitcher, it's, it's really hard because the game calling is completely different. And not only that, you show up and he's got this softball catcher's mitt on your, on your chair <laughs> <laughs> that everybody else uses, you know, he pimps right. it out and whoever's catching has to wear this thing and it's kind of nasty. And, um, you know, it's big and floppy and uh, you don't know what the ball's going to do right. and it changes your whole, your whole setup. And I like to catch and throw and, and block balls. And, and when he throws that knuckleball, it just it completely rattled me at times. And um, I mean, just feel like, you know, you're right on it. The next thing you know, you're going to the backstop to catch it. So, <laughs> He was the nastiest. Scott Erickson was tough too. I caught him in Minnesota. I actually caught his no hitter, and um, he was tough because he was hard to sometimes get on the same page with. And plus, he had a nasty sinker and slider, and so his ball was biting in both directions. And um, and sometimes he was tough to communicate with. And um, so, and, you know, there are certain other guys that, that I caught that I would want them to throw a certain pitch and I knew they were stubborn and they would shake me off just to shake me off so that I would intentionally put the, the wrong sign down so they would shake me off so I could go to the sign that I wanted to call. I love that. So yeah so you know you have to figure out what each pitcher is about and um, get to know them and one of the things that I learned from Mike Sosha that I thought helped me more than anything was just to literally sit next to the pitcher in between innings just so you can be there for them to, you know, bounce ideas off and just to let them know that, you know, you're there. And, and that, that really kind of helped, you know, building that trust and that bond uh, makes a big difference. I want to go back to real quick, Chris, before uh, you jump into your question. I wanted to ask, uh, you know, Matt, were you the, the guy, you talked about changing the setups. So were you square catching the knuckleball guy or were you turned to the side? I was square and it got to the point where I thought that it would be best to not try and actually catch it or receive it, but to let the ball hit me in my chest. And I, and I tried to sway with it after a while and just trying to block it when it was in the air. And um, that's not a good feeling because when I was catching, I like to keep my body as still as possible instead of moving to the pitch. But yeah, I tried to stay square. Yeah. Um, Scott Schoenweiss, I don't know if you remember him. He was a left-handed uh-huh. pitcher. We had through a nasty cutter. His mm-hmm. four-seamer had natural uh, cut to it. And so I would turn my catcher's mitt over this way as he was getting ready to make the pitch because it was easier for me to, to frame it that way. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's different. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you say it just because of where we're at right now. I think you're seeing less body sway to the pitch. And you're like you just said, I, I like to be as quiet as possible. I just I think it's interesting that you hear some people, it's like, oh, I got to sway to the pitch. And then you have others, it's like, catch quiet, don't move, you know, subtly move your hand or, you know, um, mid position, pre pitch, whatever. But um, I'm glad you talked about that. I'm, I don't want to take up Chris's question, but. I'm no, that, this is going to be, that was going to be my question. You know, I, I had that was one of the things with catching a knuckleball. I, I caught a guy who was a, he was a triple A guy with the Orioles. Now, it was funny because he was literally signed out of a, um, just like a, a friend signed him because he was played a year of independent ball, just walked into a tryout through knuckleball and was unhittable. Um, ends up with the, his first year in pro balls in AAA with um, Baltimore. So he's from Buffalo where I am. And I caught him in the off season. I grew up with the kid and he spent like a couple weeks with, um, with Phil Negro going down there to learn to, to how to really throw it. And you'd get mad if it would do a full rotation. It was, it was filthy, but I, I tried to do that with a larger glove. And then I'm just like, no, I'll just use my, my right. And I use a smaller one. I use like a 32 and a half or 33 inch glove, but I was always, you know, kind of like the way you were, you know, big, deep, um, Charlie O'Brien-esque, if you will, and let the ball literally come to me at the last second. Like I never wanted to go out and catch it. I wanted to kind of hold the ball, hold my glove deep as possible and wait till the last second if I had to move it. So that's, that's what right. I was going to ask you, you know, yeah. when you started to get comfortable like I watched guys like when Doug Mirabelli was catching Wakefield in that. And, you know, he was that <clears throat> he was angled towards like second base and just it, you feel bad for the guys because they're reaching and grabbing and, and just pass balls. And that's, that's your numbers. That's your, you know, that's money on the table. You're, you're leaving. But what did you, you know, was that one of the things that you found it easier? Just let the ball get as deep as possible or. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I had actually did what you did. I went to my regular catcher's mitt, which was an all-star CMB 3000. And um, yeah, I've got it right there. Is it there. all tan? It was big. No, tan and black. It's BT. So let me show you. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is my last gamer CM, CM 3000 BT. Love it. That one. And it's big. I like the biggest catcher's mitt they, could, they had because I felt like I could catch more pitches and Pudge used the smaller one. Pudge used the one yep. I think that you're talking about. He used the Wilson and his was super small. He liked to keep it small. I liked a bigger one. I felt like I could throw better, block better, receive better with it. So that's what I did, Chris. I went to this to my gamer and I just let the ball get real deep and I just tried to catch it in close to my body and I might stab at it if I had to, but I just tried to relax and not worry about anything and just enjoy the ride. And um you know, I did the best I could, and I ended up catching him in Detroit too. Later on, we followed each other to Detroit. So it's funny with, with a with a pitch like that, when you're waiting for it, <laughs> the one that looks like it's gonna just hit somebody in the head, and then it just darts the other way. And yeah, I remember I, I would I would be catching, you know, just indoors and trying to catch this thing, and I would be almost laughing when the ball would move, and I, you know, just move my glove a little bit and catch it. Mm -hmm. It's like, how, how the hell does a ball do that? You know, it's, that's fascinating. You know, and every, we mm -hmm. all goof around with it. You know, you play catch and you know, here, throw a couple knuckleballs and you'll get one and you're like, oh, that was great. I'll never be able to do that again. But 
Yeah, so we're we're here talking to Matt Wallback. Matt, we can follow you at Twitter at WallbackWBA. And Matt, I, I just love the fact that you're out there posting some content and stuff. Um, you know, we talked on before we, we jumped on the call here that you really enjoy coaching. Can you kind of give our, our listeners kind of where you're at right now? You went, you know, playing to, to managing and then kind of lead us through your journey through baseball. Well, yeah. So in a nutshell, I, when I was five years old, I wanted to play in the big leagues. So I told my dad I wanted to be a major league player. <laughs> he said, well, we better start practicing. <laughs> so he gave me that initial uh, hope that it could happen. And I was always kind of the smallest kid out there. And all along um, Little League and into Pony League and then even into high school, my freshman and sophomore year, um, my freshman, sophomore year, I wasn't catching because they said I was too small. And then the kid that was in front of me didn't get grades good enough to remain eligible. So I became the starting catcher my junior year and got bigger and started lifting weights. And, and uh, then my senior year, I got drafted by the Cubs. So I went from being too small to being a pro baseball player. I spent six and a half years in the minors with the Cubs. When I was 19, I blew my knee out on a play at home plate. I was blocking the plate wrong. I had my toe pointed to right center. The batter, the base runner, Jeff Branson, he was a good ball player, came in clean. It was a good slide, hard. And I just wasn't prepared right and tore my ACL, MCL. During the time it took me to rehab my knee, I taught myself to switch hit. So I never played victim or poor me, you know, all that sort of stuff. I just tried to find a way to get better and ended up in the big leagues for 11 seasons with the teams you mentioned. And yeah, I caught a no hitter and um, hit a couple grand slams, never made it to the all stars or postseason and just kind of a grinder and, you know, had almost 500 hits and love the game. And right after my final year in playing in 2003 with the Tigers, we finished 43 and 119. It was a rough year that year. Um, Alan Trammell and Dave Dombrowski and Al Avila called me into Tram's office and said, hey, we don't want you to back, come back as a player, but we'd love to have you stay in the game with us as a coach or manager. And so I talked it over with my wife and said, hey, you know, if, if I can't play for one of the worst teams of all time, it's probably a good chance time to make a career change. <laughs> so she supported it and I started managing and had a lot of success and won a few championships and several manager of the year awards, including the 2007 Baseball America Minor League Manager of the Year Award, which encompassed all minor leagues and got hired by the Rangers to be their third base coach in 2008 and their catching instructor and the spring training coordinator. So I went from double A manager to major league third base coach and um, had some growing pains that season and didn't fit in and was back in the minor leagues with the Pirates. Spent a couple years with the Pirates and the second year I was there in 2010, won the championship and manager of the year in the Eastern League in Altoona. In fact, I was just watching um, Jordy Mercer and Josh Harrison. I'm like, oh man, those guys were on my team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're back together in, in Washington. It's awesome to see Jay them Hay. still playing. Yeah, Jay Hay, he was great. Yeah. And um, same with Jordy. Chase Darno was on that team. Man, that was a good team. Really good Anyways, team. they let me go at the end of that season. It was just some, some differences in, in uh, philosophies. And they had the, that was the time when, in 2010, when analytics really started to break through. And here I am, this old guy who, well, not old guy, but, you know, I was in my 30s and so it was, uh, it was hard to kind of, uh, I guess, fit into this new style of baseball that was being taught where um, 
it just wasn't the way I was taught. So anyways, it was no hard feelings. But um, so I went to the Braves and same thing. I just couldn't find my fit. So out I went. So I said, that's okay. I still love baseball. I'm going to do what I love. And so I started doing lessons and that turned into a full-time thing where five hours a day, six days a week, and then had a guy helping me. And then pretty soon I had a facility and teams and, and I had a business partner who Glenn Gross, we've been business partners since 2012. He helped run the teams and I did the instruction and we have these great ideas and got facility and then kept it going. And then last year COVID hit, had to shut our doors and, um, you know, it got to the point where a lot of our players left. And so we decided just, okay, let's close doors and do online training. So I've got a, a handful of kids in about three different age groups that I work with online and teach them proper fundamentals and skills and how to play the game. And I'm also building some content behind the scenes to help create this message that I have to help empower players to, uh, to enjoy baseball and, and hopefully learn some life skills along the way. And quite frankly, I just want to make the world a better place through baseball. That's all I know. I'm pretty good at it. And I think, um, you know, having an open mind and learning from guys like you and other people on Twitter and through baseball world, I've done some more of these shows. It's, it's awesome to share ideas and, and not try to overthink it and, um, and, and just take it one step at a time. And so that's where I am now. So wallbeckbaseball.com is my website and I've got more exciting things on the way. And, and, um, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at now. I've got wife and three kids. My wife still likes me most of the time. <laughs> so that's a bonus. And uh, my kids are doing great. And, uh, and yeah, I live in Sacramento. It's a super baseball hotbed and there's yes, tons of great players in this area. And so oh, yeah, and I love triple, catching triple A stadium there. I love that place. That was, fun. yeah. Great place to play for sure. Well, it's awesome, Matt. Well, we, again, we appreciate you being on the show. I want to jump back into something you had said earlier. You, you know, you were in the big league level, um, as a coach manager or um, third base coach, catching instructor. Um, and then you kind of went back towards the minor leagues. What would you say is the biggest difference that you saw in the parts of like where you're at right now, um, kind of more of an amateur type. These kids are hungry. They want to learn the game. Um, you know, you're talking about teaching them proper fundamentals, um, ways to go about their business. You get to the, the kind of the, you know, the lower level amateur type professional player, the rookie guys, um, the minor league guys, and then you have these big, big league guys that are making big money. You know, what did you find the difference was? How hard was it for you to, I guess, teach? Because it seems like to me, you're a teacher. You're out there. You want to, like you said, you want to make the world a better place. I look at your social media content. You're providing great messages, even if they're just simple one-liners, right? They're just, they're great. Kind of tell us, you know, where you felt your, like how you felt or where you felt yourself being like the most productive at as a coach. Yeah. Well, thanks for all that. I appreciate it. Um, first of all, it's, it's, it's working with the person first and then the player and understanding that a person has emotions and feelings and sometimes lacks confidence and, and keeping a humble approach to that person and listening more. I think one of the things that, that I, I like to do my coaching style is to ask questions and give a player the choice on, on certain different ways of, of doing it. So for example, as a catcher in your secondary stance, I don't think there's a certain way a catcher should hold his throwing hand. For me, I like to keep it behind my mitt. Other players like to keep it in their 
groin area. Other players kind of keep it behind. So whatever that is, just as long as they keep their thumb tucked is my only thing because mm-hmm. you can break your thumb. Um, and so I kind of keep an open mind and give the player, I let the player think about um, what it is that they're doing. So another example is if I'm doing soft toss to a player, um, I'll have the player say pitch as soon as the ball leaves my hand and hit when they hit it. And then instead of me correcting them and saying, no, you were late when you said hit, I'll ask them, were you late earlier on time when you said hit? So now they have to think about it. And, and now it becomes kind of, we trust each other. We're working with each other. Yeah. And um, whereas before when I was a kid and coach being coached, sometimes that coach would tell me what to do and I'd lose feel. I would I'd lose how my feel. And I go, and I'd kind of go, coach, was that good? Am I doing it right? And I think back, I'm like, God, that's the worst thing you can do. Um, And then with regard to the difference in the, so for a player that I'm teaching now, a high school player and a minor league player, an A ball or double A and a major league player, they're really all kind of the same, um, except the higher level player is more aware of their balance, rhythm and their direction and what they're doing. Um, Whereas the minor league player, still doesn't really have all that balance and they probably don't have a game plan as well set as a major leaguer would have. Uh, Major leaguers know how to simplify things and remove the distortion. The the amateur players and the minor league players have so much distortion going on that they aren't able to eliminate it. It's a bunch of bullshit. And they get higher levels. They're just, fuck it, you know, and they just, they just, they focus on their task at hand and they know how to, get after it and play the game one pitch at a time. And that's why you can see sometimes at the major league level, they seem arrogant, sort of stuck up and things like that. Um, it's just because quite frankly, they don't really care and they just go about it and they're able to do their job. And so as a major league coach, you have to kind of deal with that and be aware of that and understand that and not take it personally. Um, and so again, people first and then yeah. player second, and, and also keep an open mind and try to learn as much as you can along the way. So, so going into the, the major league type guy, are, are there, were there players that you just said, I know that I can help him, but you felt restricted to say, uh, I got to stay back on this, like, or else, like, not to say that you were getting into hot water, but did you feel like, gosh, I could really, there's something, there's a hitch in a swing, but I can't say it, right? Did you ever feel that way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I made mistakes too along the way. And you have to stay in your lane. And it's not about me as a coach. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes as coaches, we try to coach so much that it becomes more about what we did to help that player, instead of just being a part of that player's development. And I think, um, you know, I've learned so much since I've been out of the pro game. It's really just focusing on your job as a coach or manager for the greater good of the organization. Yeah. And not so much about me. And so we talk about being selfless as catchers. Right. We're serving and we're, you know, we're making sure that we keep the ball off the umpire and we're leaving our bats in the dugout and we're focusing on our pitcher and we're serving the pitcher. And the same thing should be said for coaches is that it's such a selfless job and we're here to serve. And it, we're just a part of that player's development. Like, again, Jay Hay and Jordy right there. They're not thinking about me right now, you know. But when they were playing for me in double A, they were like, yes, coach, you know, that kind of thing. And, yeah. and so that's just, that's just part of the deal. And I think sometimes we get in our own way as coaches to try and, and make our impact such a big deal. that. But really, when you look, think about it, we're really not that 
it's not, it's all about the player. It's all about the player. And sometimes it's better not to say anything at all and let the player play like Merv Rettmond. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was oh, my hitting yeah. coach. Yes. Merv was a great guy. He, he coached the, the Padres and Tony Gwynn and, and Tony Wally Joyner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Merv was great. He came over to the Padres with Randy or the Tigers, excuse me, from the Padres and Randy Smith was our GM and Merv was my hitting coach and he was really cool. And I sucked and I was not a good hitter and I was hitting like <laughs> 200 and I'll never forget. I was sitting on the bench again and I hadn't played in like two weeks and, and he, he kind of elbows me and he goes, that a boy and he pats me on the back and I go, what? And he goes, you're doing awesome. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're sitting out of slump. And I went, thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting out of slump. That was great advice. Thanks, Merv. Thank you. You know, so yeah. So he got, he had it figured out, you know, he, he would make me feel good about myself. Yeah. And I think that's as coaches, if we can find a way to, to help players feel confident and feel good about themselves without overcomplicating things. He also said another thing that kind of stuck with me and he's like, you know, there's a lot of hitting coaches out there that do more harm than good. You know, they're trying to make all these changes with players and they end up hurting the player by a, a drill that they show them or something they say. And sometimes it's less, less is more. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I just was thinking about something that happened to me on Sunday. Similar, like you said, you know, like these kids, these young kids, they come in with these, oh, you have the magic pill or you're, and I call it Band-Aid hitting because if you don't stick with somebody over time and you develop like you were talking about kind of the approach, right? The, the game plan. And, and they all they expect is for you to come in and make mechanical changes. It's, it's the old uh, cliche, you know, uh, paralysis by analysis. And it just gets overrun over time. And so I'm glad that you said all that. I mean, this is, this is mm-hmm. phenomenal already. So I got Chris, a, I got what a do you got for it? Yeah, go ahead. Chris. Yeah, yeah sorry, Chris. I'll, I'll, I'd like to play. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, one of the things, you know, when, when you got done, playing and, and you know out of the pro game and you started to do lessons so they always say you will go back to the old cliche I wish I would have known now what or then what I know now what was the when you started teaching kids what was one of the things that you kind of picked up on your own just by trying to explain a movement a approach or anything to a kid I, I feel like I, I yeah, I got I got a lot smarter after I got done playing. For most guys, you know, when mm-hmm. you're playing, you're relying on instincts, athletic ability. You might work, you know, like as far as catching, you know, I see all the all the guys in the big leagues right now, all the guys we've had on the show go through their their whole regiment in the off season. You know, I I'm working plyo balls. We didn't have plyo balls or anything like that, or catching frisbees or or what have you. There's so many things out there today that we didn't have. We would just go back there and, and just catch. But what was the what was kind of the thing that you that kind of clicked in your head and said, "Oh wow, I geez, I didn't realize this, and maybe I should have done that when I played too." Um, yeah, alignment rods. So I started teaching with alignment rods, like the golf rods that yeah. you see the guys in their in their bags. Absolutely. I I started mm-hmm. using those, and I would. Um, it would allow for me to use them almost like chopsticks and, and, and move a player's elbow and keep a distance between us and also being able to see and then lay them on the ground to, uh, to use as for where they're striding. And um, because I think it, even if you go back as far as we can to see Babe Ruth hitting compared to now like a Mike Trout, 
um, they all kind of have the same uh, mechanics in that they, they all get to the same launch position. They all have good balance and they all get in kind of the same contact position. So those are all similar. They also keep their head still. So those things aren't really going to change and, and they all repeat their swings. It's kind of the same swing over and over again. So I don't really, I don't really think I would do anything different um, as a player other than my swing path. I guess I would, I think my swing path was too steep and across. And I know now I used to think like I was swinging down on the ball and I know now that it's not. And so I, I probably would have had a much more launch angle type of swing um, had I known better, you know what I mean? I probably would have done that more of a, more of a fly ball approach and, and tried to uh, change my swing in that regard. Was but there anything, I don't have many anything regrets. catching? Anything catching as far as, um, I, I mean, you, listen, I mean, you, you were in the big leagues for 11 years, so there's, I mean, you, you've done it all. You've done it for a long time. It's probably very difficult to say, wow, maybe I could have done this a little different. I would have been a little bit more efficient in this area. Like for me, when I played, I always had a, I always had a tail, you know, on my throw. I was a, I was a low elbow guy. I would just sling it and learning how to actually throw and teach it to kids. Now, you know, I'm like, well, I wish I would have been able to throw the ball straight one time throughout college or, or high school. You know, more of the just learning the mechanics of throwing or, you know, the, the different movements, you know, behind the plate. I, I mean, it, catching was always just see the ball, let it get deep and, and maybe move it a couple inches here and there. But with everything that's going on today, is there anything that you, that you maybe teach your catchers a little bit differently than when you caught? Um, okay. So that's a great topic. And so my catching was my bread and butter and I was towards the top of the league and throwing runners out most every year. And I was regarded as one of the best blocking catchers. And, um, I was able to work with pitchers really well. And, um, the, what I'm seeing nowadays with the, with the framing and the way catchers are moving the ball. I think that's actually, in my opinion, I think that's not helping their ability to get the most out of the pitcher. And here's why. I think it's more focused on them and stealing pitches and less on getting more out of their pitcher. So if I'm pulling a pitch this far, um, that might not be helping my pitcher very much. If I'm starting with my target down low and he's, what's he throwing to? There's no real um, difference in, in I, I would like to think that it would be better for catchers to focus more on the pitcher and get the most out of him than it is to focus more on his grading and stealing pitches. And I hope they guys, you guys don't take that the wrong way. Oh, no, it no. just seems, it just seems like, there's it's it, the games move so far in that other direction for catching where they're on one knee that now my pitcher's afraid to bounce a ball because I'm probably not going to be able to block it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to, there's more pitches up in the zone now because catchers are down on one knee. Whereas when we were down on a knee, Sosha would yell at us and say, get down on one knee, not because we're boxing pitches, but because the pitchers get throwing the ball too high. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it just seems like nowadays it's like there's a disconnect between the pitcher and catcher relationship. And it's more about the catcher and the umpire trying to trick each other. And the pitcher's just rearing back and throwing it as hard as he can. And well, that's um, the thing. Do you think that, you know, 
that back in like back in the era when you played there was more of an art to pitching like a, like the way Maddox did it the way Glavin did it where you know Pettit when these guys would just spot up and they would hit the ass on a flea if you asked them to where now everything is so velocity driven where guys yeah they're I think the game right now is more it's more north and south over the plate whereas you know back when I played it was trying to get that three four inches off the plate everything was more of east to west from what I feel um, and today guys are throwing it seems like a lot harder you know everyone and their brother throws 95 to 105 and I think with that it's almost it's more difficult for the pitcher to say all right, I'm going to spot up here where I can just try to throw by everybody. You're right, 100%. And now they have the box on the on the t- games. So you, you have, the umpires have that box and they get graded. Oh, I hate that thing. And so, but back when I was playing and when you were playing, it was, like you said, Glavin would get, he'd get like seven, eight inches off the plate. And we all knew it, but there was really nothing you could do. Nowadays, it, they can't get that. So I can see why the catchers are focusing more on North and South. I was talking to Ryan Sienko a couple of years ago and he was saying that, yeah, we did great on the low pitch, but we struggled on the high pitch. So he had to adjust as a catching instructor on how to get the guys to now manipulate that pitch down. Mm-hmm. So, which I, I mean, you mentioned his name earlier. He's, he's one of the best. Um, so I still think there needs to be a happy medium. I still think that catchers can get more out of their pitchers by hitting their targets by the way they present themselves in their pre-pitch. To me, it seems like their pre-pitch is the same regardless of the count or the pitcher. However, sometimes, I think it was one of you guys may have posted it, the uh, catcher will adjust maybe for a higher pitch with his, his pre-pitch a little bit differently as he would adjust to a, uh, a breaking ball or something in his pre-pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Anyways, kind of getting back to what I was saying about showing why, so I would turn my glove differently just because I didn't want to get thumbed. Right. Um, but I don't know. I just think I think there could be a little more. I think there could be better pitching, even with the velocity, just keeping the ball down in the zone. I think they've lost that. The spin rate thing, I know they. they I mean, you guys heard this, but pitchers with a certain level of spin rate do better at high in the zone. And, yes. and other pitchers with, with different will pitch better low in the zone. Right. And so maybe there's some truth to that. But I still think as a hitter, man, it's tough to hit that low pitch because it's coming at you at an angle and you're going to get more ground mm-hmm. balls. It just seems like there's more damage done up in the zone. Absolutely. I agree. So going into the – going back to where you're talking about showing why he's turning your mitt, you know, now you're seeing guys that are actually and, – and even bringing up Ryan Sienko because um, he was one that I would talk to and he was like, oh, you know, when you turn your thumb this way – and it's preset, right? So we're talking about – pre-catch or pre-contact that I'm opening my pocket up here and it's a natural movement uh, I mean do you agree I mean you I mean we, yeah I caught this way hell too. yeah you know I caught this way where this is the way to catch it it's yeah. here mm-hmm. and then bring it up that way right. it's this that's the move for right. sure and what, and you, I wish and what, I could have done what we're showing on air guys just so you understand is, is Matt has his pocket inverted at a six o'clock thumb and all he's doing is bringing it back to three o'clock flat. Okay. Yeah. Show that again, Matt. I got a recording here. So, yeah. So it's here. You catch this low pitch like this, mm-hmm. and then you snatch it up like that and keep this part of the catcher's mitt flat. It doesn't have to be like this. You can just go from here to there. 
and because he's seeing that part of your catcher's mitt. So you can grab this pitch down low and then snatch it up like that. And who is it? Flowers, I think, does a great job with that. Mm -hmm. And they'll even go on this side. So, so if the pitch takes me on this side of the plate on my mitt side, I can snatch it here and then bring it back like that. Now, guys, there's something to be said about this. Check this out. And I, I want to start seeing catchers do this more often. But they're, they're taking pitches that are two inches on the plate, and they're moving it. I think they should just do the old Charlie O'Brien or Bob Boone and just stick it. Mm -hmm. yeah, don't even yeah. just get, we, used to, we used to say beat the ball to the spot. That was right. our thing. Get there before the ball does and then move it a little bit. Or you can actually just get there and just let it hit your catcher's mitt and hold it. Nowadays, they're not – I'm watching the game kind of in the background too. Nowadays, they'll um, – it's like they'll catch it and move it so fast that the umpire really never sees where it is. So yeah. I'd like to see catchers do a little bit more of just sticking and not moving. Yeah. Whereas now it's just like – it's just, <laughs> just like ripping it all over the place. It's like, oh, my goodness. So anyways, I don't know. I think it hurts That's the throwing. I know it hurts the blocking too. But, yeah, this is the move right here. Tyler on that on that pitch where the ball is coming in and you don't have to move because you know it's a strike as long as they hit the mitt you know I remember like when guys have a like a big curveball right and they start it real high and you don't move a lick almost like you're frozen and the ball just drops in and hits your mitt you know as soon as it hits your glove no matter where where the pitch actually is you know you're getting that strike because he proved that he could hit his spot you know, if you hold yep. your glove up there, even if it's a couple inches below your knee, if you ask whoever's behind you, hey, am I good right here? And he says yes, and you know that it's not a strike, I'm not going to move the glove at all. I'm going to let the ball just drop down there, and if it hits it, you already said mm -hmm. you can give me that pitch as long as he hits the spot. So I, that's, yeah. that's always been my argument with the whole, you know, how much is too much? And that's where the, you know, the arguments I would have with some guys and, you know, I, I understand the pre-pitch movement, the creating momentum into the ball and a low pitch and kind of riding that momentum into the zone. And, but there's, there's tons of different ways to do it. Just we were messing around. I threw on the, uh, the gear on Friday night. My son left me hanging because he got a ride home, supposed to catch bullpens for me. So I ended up catching, um, caught some high school kids 20 minutes and I was like dead over the whole weekend. But from, from that aspect, messing around with all the different stances, I took a couple that were from with my right knee down, and all I did was mess around with my feet position. So I put my, my pressure on my heel and left my toes in the air, and when the ball came, I started to sink as I caught it. Mm. As I got comfortable with that, it wasn't really me moving the glove up. It was my head moving down into it. So... I'm only moving my glove now, maybe three, four inches, just a little, a little flick. Right. But it looks like I'm moving it six to eight inches, you know, sir. A lot of that is the illusion that you're, I guess, creating for the umpire, which is all the, you know, taking his, taking his view of the bottom of the zone away. And there's so many different ways that you can do it. And I don't know, it's uh, like I say you, I learned something on Friday night just from playing around and, you know, having my body screaming at me for the rest of the weekend, what the hell are you doing to me? So I want to ask you, Maddie, is there somebody that you or catchers that you would say to your young amateur catchers, this is the guy that I think you ought to watch? And I don't think kids are watching enough baseball today. So yeah. is there somebody or people that you say, hey, 
Or are you just saying, hey, watch the game? The game's going to tell you something. It's going to teach you something if you just watch. Do you have either A, a guys to catch your group, or do you just tell your guys, hey, watch the game? Yeah, I tell them watch a the game, and I, there's no particular catcher that I um, point out to them. What I'm trying to teach them now, the younger players, is all the teams in baseball and what league and division they're in because they don't know that anymore. And I think a lot of that is just because, you know, when I was a kid, I'd read the paper and I'd read the box score. Not the paper, but I'd read the box scores. And I just knew where all the teams were in the divisions. Nowadays, they don't even know. And I just think that's kind of a a shame that that they don't know the history of the game or, you know. So I just try to teach them that. And you you can tell them to watch the game, but unless they really want to, um, they're not going to, you know, they, there's so many other distractions that they're dealing with on social media and, and that sort of thing. They're just kind of see it and hit it and go play and they don't know much about the game. So that kind of concerns me a little bit. It really does, you know. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the other thing back on Chris's point, <clears throat> I like to, to, when I was catching, I was naturally just took my nose to the ball. And I always thought that sort of helped me receive and, and present the pitch better by, by taking my nose to the ball. It just sort of happened. And if it was a, a high pitch and I, I kind of lower my head a little bit, that would give the, the umpire a better look too. And I'd like to hold it there for them just for a second, just so they could really see it. Um, anyways, just as a side topic. Mm-hmm. Was there anyone that when you, were, when you were coming up that you kind of looked to or kind of studied or emulated a little bit? Or when you were a kid, well, you know, that yeah. we didn't have Thurman Munson. We didn't have the Thurman Munson. Thurman Munson. Okay. Yeah, Thurman Munson was my favorite player. And, um, you know, I kind of threw like him, too. I had a little fade like you did, Chris. I played mm-hmm. a little fade, but I just played it. And um, I just tried to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Yep. I'd start it left, and it would, it would drop right into the tag zone. Um, and I just liked his style, and I liked watching his leadership and the way he balled. He was a baller, man. He was, he was tough as nails. And, um, you know, he was, he was the person that I looked up to and I was fortunate to, to learn. I played against Tony Pena. He was, he was pretty amazing. Um, I kind of idolized him as a kid too and getting a chance to play against him. And then Sandy Alomar, um, Pudge Rodriguez, Charles Johnson was pretty amazing too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike Piazza was more of a hitter. Um, but still, you know, I was fortunate to play in the nineties from 93 to 03. So I got to play against all those big boppers, you know? I, I always thought I never had an issue with uh, with Piazza's receiving. I actually thought he did a, a pretty decent job on that. I think the biggest knock was his, you know, his throwing or his arm or that. But yeah, yeah, he was a huge yeah. hitter. But I, I yeah. even looking back at old videos or old games that are yeah. you know on MLB Network and that, seeing him receive, I mean, he his hands looked fine to me. I didn't have any issue with that. Yeah, I agree, and I like the way he worked with his pitchers. He was, mm-hmm. he, he was a stud, man. He could, uh, he, he, he didn't take his at-bats behind the plate. That's what I really liked about him. I had a lot of respect for him. He was a great hitter, a great teammate from what I heard. And um, he wasn't an emotional roller coaster. He just was a great, he was a gamer. So Matt, you, uh, you get a new kid coming into you either, you know, via virtual or I know that you said that you had to unfortunately shut your guys' door at your facility, but you got a catcher. You know, we're a catching podcast. We can talk about hitting too. Um, what's the first thing that you're doing with that young man or young woman? Maybe you work with softball mm-hmm. yeah. uh, catchers too, but um, what, what's the first thing that you're doing? 
Um, I look at their gear, make sure their gear fits them. And I let make sure they put their clips on the outside of their legs. And then once all that stuff's set up, I go through the, the, I have a sign stance progression that I teach every kid when they come in. And basically it's a sign stance. Mm -hmm. I teach them that hands together, shuffle, shuffle, target. And I want to make sure that their left elbow is on top of their left knee. I teach that. I know some people think that that's maybe not the way to do it, but problem is a lot of kids when they start catching they have a stiff their mm -hmm. arms straight yeah. mm -hmm. or their their elbows inside or outside their left knee so i get them into that position where their feet are are different than their sign stance because a, a, a brand new catcher will sometimes just go straight from sign stance to receiving stance yeah. so that's why i go sign stance hands together shuffle shuffle target and then i talk about their right hand because generally they'll try to put their right hand behind their back and so I have them put it behind their ankle. I think that's a good place to start. And then as they get more experience, they can start to move their right hand around either in their groin or behind their mitt or somewhere else. And that's basically what I teach them. And then I teach them how to hold the ball. I teach you know, them a four-seam grip. Yeah. You know, I, I do the same. I ask the kids the same thing. What, why is it called a four-seam grip? And it's like, oh, because you're holding four seams. Ah, no, I don't think your hands are that big. You know, you want to see the four seams rotate back to you. How about um, going into kind of, uh, you know, so you talk, you start with a, a signal stance kind of progression. What are you doing after that? What, what, what are some drills that you're doing with the, you know, the softball catchers, the amateur catchers as it relates to receiving or, or catching the ball? Um, I just do a simple underhand toss to them and just, teach them to receive the ball. I teach them where the pocket is in their catcher's mitt and, and explain to them that it's like catching the ball in this part of their hand. And, and then once I get them to understand where the pocket is, I'll do a two ball drill where I'll take their catcher's mitt off and I'll have a ball in both my right and my left hand. And as they catch the ball, they flip it back to me and then I'm flipping another one and we get going to that. And then I'll do a lot of machine drills and I'll put them on both knees so they can just focus on receiving the ball. Because sometimes when they get on one knee or two knees, it can affect their, their mm -hmm. receiving. And I just want them to get used to catching the ball in the pocket and not worrying so much about pulling it and focusing more on receiving the ball and, and holding it and, and not catching carrying it. Mm -hmm. um, the pulling and framing and that sort of stuff comes later. But I think if younger kids focus too much on pulling pitches, it's going to affect the integrity of their stance and their overall receiving. Cause I think catchers when they're young should really focus on first, keeping the ball in front mm -hmm. and then second catching the ball and then third presenting the ball and then fourth pulling pitches in that order and trying not to put the cart before the horse. Do you use any, uh, any training gloves with that? I know all-stars got a, a boatload of them. So, um, you know, I don't, I know that there's the donut and the, the webless thing. I, I don't. I just like to use uh, regular catcher's mitts. But, you know, here's the secret. Um, I like shooting tennis balls at them out of the pitching machine because they're lightweight and they're harder to, to receive and you have to have softer hands to catch a tennis ball. So once you go from the tennis ball and you put a hard ball in there, they catch many more pitches because mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's heavier and it has more weight. Um, and then the golf ball size wiffle balls are pretty good too to catch bare hands. A lot of it's hand eye, so I'll teach the kids how to juggle as well. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. nice. Never thought yeah. of that. Yeah. How about so now you're you know you're you're a lot on social media. We can find you on um, 
Twitter in Facebook, I think you mentioned to mm-hmm. us. How about Instagram? And it, inst- Instagram yeah, too? I have a pretty big following on Instagram too. So yeah, I, I guess my question is this. You, you see a lot what you know, what we all call eyewash. What is the worst drill you've, you've seen <laughs> from a catching standpoint? Gosh, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, like I said earlier, before we went on live, um, I just, I don't have, I have a hard time judging people and the way what they're teaching um just because i know how hard this game is to play and how humbling it is and i know if i start thinking about oh that's lame or you know that guy what the hell is that all about i'm just it's just more time for me not to think about how to make my students better Mm -hmm. and so i don't even know to be honest because that's if i go down that road then i start to become sort of like just you know, I'm better than everybody. I have all the answers and I don't know. I think I just open eye, open eyes. And all I know is that the experience that I've had from catching is more about um, working with the pitcher. And, and I think on a whole general, everything today is more about the catcher and, and his ability to, to pull pitches. And the one knee thing um, I just think is, is not benefiting uh, the pitcher as well as, as a two knee stance traditionally. Absolutely. So that's the only thing I have a little bit, just a little bit of a gripe on that, but I understand there's analytics involved and in, in that, but if I'm teaching a kid to catch, the only reason I'll put them down on one knee is because I think they need a break. <laughs> I feel like the analytics from a player, individual player development standpoint is, is separating team aspect a lot. I mean, you talk about it, you talked about it when we were talking about receiving, right? When, this guy's focused solely on stealing pitches as opposed to working with his pitcher and navigating him through nine or getting him to maybe past the fifth inning right nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that you started to go down that road. Do you feel like as a catcher or just a player in general that you would want those um, tools at your disposal after a game, after a series, or do you feel like that it would have, you know, going back to the cliche that I use, that it would have created some paralysis if you were overanalyzing what you were doing in a game. Because you said, oh, I wish I was a little bit more of like a, you know, kind of taking that upswing approach. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't know. I was going to ask you actually um, about video and, you know, what you thought about video. Like for me, I the watching too much video uh, made me overanalyze mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and so what, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Just to flip it around on, on your, from your perspective. I appreciate it. You know, um, I personally uh, liked watching video. Um, I still like watching it. I think that seeing, you know, how I can either, and I was always trying to make things simpler as much as I could. So if, if I saw that, okay, like we were talking about big moves, if that was a huge move to me, like, no, I got to do it simpler. How can I, how can I be more subtle with my hand position? So, or, or if, when it comes to hitting, uh, I, I just would never look at the numbers. I always wanted to look at the action, you know? And so I wasn't a big guy when it came to, okay, you know, what's, what's my percent or, you know, um, first pitch swing percentage. What's this? Um, you know, what's, you know, am I swinging at a lot of O2 breaking balls or whatever? No, I was more about, okay, 
Um, I knew in my head, I felt like I had a really good memory that I would want to stay, you know, okay, yeah, my hands were, were here. And it wasn't so much more mechanical, but it was just like, it was my feel more than anything. So I'm a big fan of video and, and analyzing, you know, I could remember, okay, I knew what that felt like. I was just not big on looking at the hitting numbers. If it was catching, you know, and, and I played in the generation, I got out in 2013s, but if it was 2014, 2015, whatever, in today's game, I'd want to know, but I would also have the, uh, uh, the, the conviction with my pitcher to say, hey, I'm going to try to get as many pitches as I could. Hopefully you're out there longer. But that's just, that's kind of my take on it. Um, yeah, I would I would be okay with it, just not the hitting numbers, I guess. But more video than anything. I don't think I would I would look at like the catching numbers and that. If I had that stuff available to me, like I I know in a game if I'm if I'm expanding the zone, I don't think I would need data to say, hey, in this in this little upper left hand quadrant, you know, I'm I'm not getting those pitches. Because I think like I'm going to have the other ones are going to make up. Like you're not going to be perfect on every single quadrant. Just like with hitting, you're not going to you're not going to cover the entire plate. You got to give up one third or the other. Um, and if the pitcher hits that, then you're not looking for it. Then you tip your hat. But as far as the catching goes, I don't I I don't know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really if, if someone said, hey, this is your your data. I would look at it. I'd be like, okay. But I wouldn't dwell on it. I wouldn't say I I really need to focus on you know, getting that pitch down and away because I was always comfortable with that. You know, with a lot of the guys that we've talked to on the show that are like, I have to see the stats the next day. I have to go over those and then I have to look at video. I don't know. I, maybe it's just a different era, but I don't, I don't think I would even want that. Yeah, I think it would probably, I'm like you, Chris, I, I'm more focused on each individual pitcher. Like catching Jack McDowell is totally different than catching Tim Belcher. They wanted me to set up differently. They wanted me to move at different times, depending on, um, you know, as part of their delivery. All of that stuff was all about them. And um, that's just how we were taught. Like Sosha would say, write a notebook, figure out each pitcher, ask them, when do you like me to move with a runner on second? Some pitchers are like, I don't care. Just get out there. Give me the target. I don't care if they know what's coming. Other pitchers are like, wait till it's just about at my release point. So I'm serving them. I'm focusing more on them. My data was picking up the stat sheet and seeing what that pitcher's ERA is with me catching. And that was it. It wasn't like, you know, the down and in pitch and all that sort of stuff. Because if I'm focused on different quadrants and, and all about me, then that's going to affect that pitcher out there. Because right. at the end of the day, I want that guy going to the front office saying, I want him catching me, yeah. <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. that that's what I wanted. I wanted these pitchers to want to throw to me. And so I do whatever I had to. If that means I have to chew his ass and tell him, to, let's go, you know, and, and bark at him. And other guys, I knew that I couldn't talk that way to them. Some guys, I couldn't look at their eyes. Some guys, I had my own thoughts that went through my head. That they didn't even know I was thinking to help them throw better. My thought was stay under the ball. I didn't have to put my glove down on the ground to stay under the ball. I just had a way of figuring out that if I looked at a certain spot on his shoe as he was lifting up his foot and I would trace up to his release point, I would have an imaginary line at a certain point down below. Nothing was going to go below that because I knew it was easier for me to go up to catch a high pitch than it was to think up and then at the last second go down. Every pitcher had his own little, my own little thought process with him. That's why, Tyler, I think if, if I was, had all this analytics in front of me, I would, I would suck. I would be all about myself. And that's yeah. for me, not the catcher. 
The well, catcher's that's... about get the pitcher to win. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And and I appreciate it. It's it's something to be said just because yeah, we're you have to have a servant mindset and stuff and you know, I I I uh it's fun to hear that because we don't talk enough. I think we talked a lot about on the show and we have in the past with a lot of different people about the, the physical aspect. We never talk and never engage in the uh, mental side of it, the approach. You know, I always talk to the young men and women that I, that I instruct, it's approach. It's never approach. And it's like, we have to talk more approach than what you're saying. And, and you're spot on by saying, it's like, yeah, the way that I said, how do I work with the pitcher, so to speak? So now I appreciate you. So I was just curious because it's out there. You know, you have certain people, uh, certain people are very vocal on social media about, you know, hey, this is not going to work. This doesn't work. It's a gimmick. It's going to change back. Um, you know, and so, uh, I just, uh, you know, again, it's, it was a, it's a really good message. It's a really good message. How about from the hitting side? Um, you know, I know we, we talk about that. We talk about this and I, I want to go back into instruction, right? Because, um, you know, we're all three instructors here. We all three in, instruct differently, right? But I think coaching is, is a lot of uh, plagiarism. Okay. So right, right. going back into hitting, you had one of the best hitting coaches ever, Merv Redmond, like you spoke on. Um, are you taking a lot what you've maybe, you know, from him or from somebody else or just your own instincts? Like you talk about, you played this game a long time, you played at the highest level. Like how simple are you making your hitting lessons? So the first time a hitter walks through the door, what are you doing? Um, Okay. it's a good question. So I'm having them, I'm putting a couple balls on the tee, maybe four and just watching them hit. Mm -hmm. And then I'm getting my camera out and I'm just going to video and I'm going to show them different parts of their swing. And, um, and I have approaches that I, I talk about probably more than mechanics, mm -hmm. but the approaches are looking to hit to targets. So not getting so internal with their swing. Um, and focusing or focusing on a, a certain area that their swing's going to go to so that the ball can get in the way of their swing and uh, getting them to put the ball on the tee a certain way and focus on hitting the ball in a certain spot. So whether it's this way or into the four seams and that sort of thing. Um, I also ask them how tight they squeeze the bat, zero being the tightest, 10 lightest, 10 being the tightest. And most of them say eight. And then I ask them to, to try to squeeze it at a four to see the, the difference of that. And then I get them to feel um, the follow through. I, I try to see if they can hold their follow through after they hit the ball. And many of them can't. And, um, you know, it's just, it's very difficult. And then I'll have them hit the ball. And when I'm soft tossing to them and if have them understand if they're hitting the ball towards the thin of the bat on the sweet spot or towards the end of the bat. And so they have to tell me, if it's towards the thin of the bat, it's a one. If it's on the sweet spot, it's a two. And if they hit it off the end of the bat, it's a three. And so to get them to feel that, I'll actually have them hold the bat off their belly button and close their eyes and I'll tap their bat and, and tap it towards the thin of the bat just really quickly and say, where would I hit that? And they'll point maybe sometimes to the end of the bat. So just getting them to understand the relationship of where the sweet spot is. 
And so it just kind of opens up their mind and gives them a little more freedom to kind of go, oh, really? So all I need to do is be balanced and hit the ball in the sweet spot. And it's like, yeah. And then saying pitch hit, like when the ball leaves a pitcher's hand or my hand, say pitch. And when you hit it, say hit. So the faster someone throws, it's going to be less time in between that. Oh, okay. So yeah. And then talk about on the on deck. And so there's so many things, but just getting them to hit off the tee and then soft toss and then progressively move into coach pitch and, and, and balance and that sort of thing. Yeah. And try not to overcomplicate it, make it fun. So when what's some of the, what's one of the things that you do regarding let's just say blocking with a kid i mean you were you were a very solid defensive catcher um one of the better blockers when you were playing what are some of the things that you translate to the catchers to try to simplify that you know as far as i get them on yeah i get them on their knees and i make sure when they're in the blocking position their toes are pointed out so a lot of times when kids go down, they just think that they're, they have to be on their shoelaces and so their toes are behind them. I like to get them on the inside of their knees so their toes are out. And then I have them do what's called a rodeo block because it's so hard for younger kids to take their right hand or their throwing hand and put it behind their catcher's mid on time. So I just have them put their right hand out and don't even worry about that. And then I have them tuck their chin for three reasons. One, because it protects their throat. The second reason is because it allows for them to actually see the ball go down. And then the third reason is because it actually rounds their shoulders. Because a lot of kids, they arch their back. And so what I'll do is I'll have them start in that position where their toes are on the, on the pointed out. They're on the inside of their knees. And they're in that preset blocking position. And then I bounce the ball. And I have them block it with their chest. And before they can get up, they have to fall on the, you know, go down to the ground and mm-hmm. stick their nose with their mask on the ball to stop it. I call it nose it. So they, I bounce it, they block it. And then even if it gets away from them, they have to crawl on their hands and knees and stick their <laughs> nose on it to stop it. Yeah. Not to bully them or anything like that, but it's just to get them to understand that they can learn to control the ball. And if they learn to control, it, it'll be easier for them to stick their nose on it because a lot of kids, when they block, they turn their head to the side. Yes. And so I felt that this really helps it. The other thing I like to teach, and I don't see this much on, on any of the social media outlets is a lot of people when they're teaching blocking is they just have them block and stay down there. I teach them how to actually get up from the block because I believe that the block is not just a down move. It's a down and up move. Mm -hmm. It's all one motion. The follow through on the block is getting up off the ground. And then I teach them how to pick the ball up. And there's two ways to do it. You either push it into the ground to help build momentum off the, off the earth and, or you pick it up with your catcher's mitt. I'm going to show you how, how I teach it. I take this part of the catcher's mitt, and I know a lot of people can't see this right now, but it's the part that runs from the pinky into the toe, that little seam right there. And that's the part that I use to pick the ball up off the ground. I use it as a backstop this way, and I funnel it to the center of my body. So once you teach them all those motions, then generally you have, you have to teach them the mindset, which is every time the pitcher throws the ball, he's going to be bouncing it. Now you're prepared for that block. If you're prepared for the receiving part of it and you're worried about pulling the pitch, the block is secondary. For me, the block was primary and the receiving was secondary. Um, So, yeah, get them down on the ground, right hand out of the way, tuck the chin, have it hit the chest, try to catch it off the chest, and then stick your nose on it. I think I've seen Yadier Molina do that in practice. That's where I got it. That's where I got it. Yep. That's where I got that idea. Yep. And it really works. You're in your studio, so we talk about hitting lessons and we talk about catching lessons. Are you having, um, say, uh, the coach or mom or a dad 
as you're sitting there, right, in the comfort of your, your home, um, are you saying, okay, hey, I want you to do this next? How are you instructing? Um, I, I've done some virtual lessons myself. It's mm -hmm. pretty amazing. They're um, tough, too. That's, they're that's, tough. You're right. Yeah. You got to be creative and cle uh, clever with how you approach it. But um, how, are you, how are you doing this? I've got a knack for it. I've done, yeah. I've worked with 3,000 students in the last oh, year. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I've averaged two classes a day. So I've done over 600 classes. So if anybody's out there listening, I'm only taking a few more students. I don't have many space, much space left. Um, but I am taking on some new students. And my classes are 45 minutes long. And um, the only time a parent is involved in the class, and it's not because I tell them not to, Mm -hmm. They're flipping balls to the kids because I'm giving them so much instruction and so much training and, and pressure and com competition. In other words, I'll put a spotlight on them. So everybody has to come and watch them do a particular drill. And um, we, it's a drill haven. I have tons of drills that we do and, and the kids have to perform these drills and it, for some reason, I've just got a knack for it and it works great. I don't do any in-person training in my studio. When I was doing in-person training at the facility at the Academy, um, it got to the point where I had to put the parents in a parent room and I put a closed circuit TV so they could watch it on TV. Yeah. Um, but even when I was doing, when I first got started, um, I would just kindly respectfully ask the parent, you know, just to, just to observe and, um, and to hold off on questions for later. But it's just, I, I don't know. I'm just blessed. I have the ability to connect with people, uh, training wise, either online or in person. And, you know, I've, I quite frankly think that teaching online, the players get better. I know it's hard to believe, um, as opposed to being in person. And um, I've got kids to prove it. Well, my my kid doesn't listen to me, so maybe I'll maybe I'll sign him up for a couple lessons with you. Check it out. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Tyler? I was gonna say. So, are you? Do you have like when you say a class? Do you have like 45, 50 kids on a Zoom call or? No, only no. eight. Only I eight. have about yeah. I have about 45, 50 kids that I'm working with in whole in total. Okay. Okay. And they train with me uh, weekly in classes that are preset on my website, either hitting or catching or what I call a complete player. And, um, and I also have special classes for the kids that are in specific age groups that are their own team training team. Oh, that's cool. But all the kids from the training teams can pick and choose like a buffet and, and sign up for the drills that I teach them specifically um, in these classes. And I have an iPad and I have super fast Wi-Fi. <laughs> and I have a stand that I use my iPad on and I'm able to just boom, boom, boom. And I do it. It was like, Hey, this works. And I can reach people. I have a kid that I worked with in St. Louis that trains with me and, and uh, kids from all over. Most of them are from my area, but it works great. It's awesome. And it's teaching and, and they don't have to leave their house. And you know what? It forces them to build their own little hitting area where they can go out and practice in their garage. Why should they have mm -hmm. to drive 30 miles to come work with me for 30 minutes? Yeah. You know, and pay all that money and gas and for services that I'm providing when they can do it in their own home and, cool. and work on their own on their own stuff. That's what it's about. It's about empowering kids and players and allowing the parent to focus on what they have to do and, and know that their kid's getting great instruction. That's super cool, man. That is so Thanks. Cool. Love that. Holy cow. Well, I've got one. I've got one other thing since we brought yeah, up Mike So yeah. brought up Mike Socio and Tyler was Tyler <laughs> spoke with uh, he was on the panel with um, with Mike earlier last year on the uh, the ABCA uh, convention. 
And I always heard guys talk about um, Sosha just from the leadership aspect behind the plate, but from a um, perspective that something in the game that's not allowed anymore with collisions. So Mike had a, I remember one of my old managers showed me what he did and it made a lot of sense where he would kind of lay down on the ground with his knees in front of the plate, laying backwards and letting the guys slide into him. So do you think the, uh, with the changes in the game, with them eliminating stuff, I know you weren't a, weren't a huge guy, but did you, were you kind of like, man, I wish they took away collisions when I played, or did you kind of embrace that as part of the game? So, yeah, Mike, I didn't do, I didn't uh, respectfully disagreed with the way he taught the blocking the plate. And he had us practice that in spring training where we would have to get on our knees and line up sideways because you don't want to line up, you know, front with your knee. You had to be sideways. And then he would have Mickey Hatcher, our hitting coach, run us over. And I didn't like it. I didn't like my head hitting the ground. It didn't feel right. So um, let me just real quick, I'll get, I'll answer that question in a second. What I like to do is show them the plate, give them the plate, show them the plate and then catch the ball and then take it away. Those big dudes can hurt you. And so I show them the plate. If you're, if you're standing in front of the plate like this, they have one thing in mind that is to take you out. And so I had, after I blew my knee out and got some stitches, I did get knocked out a few times. I figured it's not worth trying to, to stand in front of it and get rolled over. But I liked the rule. I liked the fact that that guy was going to try and clean my clock. I liked it. I welcomed it because I thought this is a great opportunity for me to tag him out. And they'd go out of their way and they'd try to rough you up in the whole bit. But I don't, I don't like the, the way now they have to slide and stuff. I kind of liked it. I'm sorry if that, if that sounds wrong. But I liked the aggressive nature of having to block the plate. And and the guy trying to knock the ball out of your glove, and so I, I understand why we don't have it anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I liked the rule. I'm glad it was there when I played. I thought it was fun. <laughs> Crazy, right? I, I, I enjoyed I it too. That. I yeah, I loved getting low and at the last second ducking under. Yeah, me too. Or giving with it. Them. Yep, and just flipping them right over. Yeah. Um, I'll give you guys both my five times somebody plowed me over. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't I had a well I'm six foot four two thirty and I had a guy that was six foot one 280 trucked me and, and that was the last that was the last so you guys can have can have my oh so I'll take the rule right now I'll take the no I, I, fair enough I flipped fair over enough. I flipped over Beltray and A-ball like he came he came in at home and at the last second I duck under and lifted and got oh, him wow. He somersaulted. That yeah. was that's my that's my claim to flame, my flame, flame, pretty much. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that was uh, the whole thing with um, you go into like Buster Posey when the rule came in. You know, when I see videos of that, and I see him on both knees in front of the plate, with the guy running full speed. I'm like, where was where was the coaches on this, or why did not how come nobody said, Hey, this is not a position you ever want to be in. You know, it was exactly, like, exactly. Like, he was in a bad position. That? Right. Horrible. He was, he was out of position. And then that's the whole thing is like, they changed the rule because of, I think because of Buster Posey. Um, 
but if you look at it, tech, fundamentally, he was out of position. That was not a good position to be in. And so, yeah, that, that kind of, um, but anyways, I guess the health and safety of the players is, is more important, but it does take away from some of the excitement, you know, and even taking guys out at second game, mm -hmm. the games, certainly it was much different before I got there in the seventies. It was hardcore. Those guys weren't making very much money and they were just throwing at each other's heads and fighting fist fights and, you know, just simple slides into third base and George Brett, I think, or Craig Nettles are going out. They're just like fighting each other. And then, you know, they break it up and nobody got thrown out. Let's play ball. Here we go. Okay, let's go. You know, I was like one of one totally of my different. favorite one of my favorite <clears throat> video clips that pops up on on social media every now and then is um what is it, Al uh Herbosky, the mad Hungarian, mm -hmm. and just throwing throwing guys' heads, throwing yeah. bats. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, I'd love to get that guy on the show. Uh, it's just I, you see some of the stuff that went on in, like, the 70s and 80s, and you're like, good Lord. I mean, what was the – didn't – I think Clemens threw, a, threw the broken bat at Piazza, right? That yeah, did. yeah, he did. Well, we used to throw it, guys. We just used to throw it, guys. It was just – it was the way the game was. Dennis Martinez were playing against the Indians, twins. And um, Dennis Martinez threw at Kirby Puckett and hit him in the face this was in 95 and um, it was towards the end of the season it, and it ended the season for Puckett hit him right in the in the eye socket I remember that and um yeah and Frankie Rodriguez was pitching and I was catching and nobody said anything on the bench and I'm looking around I'm going man they just hit Kirby Puckett nobody's saying I'm like hey Frankie I go first guy goes down and everybody in the dugout kind of looks like, oh, man, here we go. And I didn't know. I didn't really know who was up because I was so shook up. I'm like, oh, boy, it's Albert Bell. Here we go. So Frankie comes <laughs> in. He throws his warm-up pitches. And he was – I really liked him. He was a great teammate, tough as nails. And um, he had a tattoo, I think, before guys had tattoos. And he gets in there, throws his eight warm-up pitches. I throw it down. And here comes Albert Bell. And Eddie Murray's on deck. And first pitch, wham, just drills him. And Albert, like, is thinking about charging the mound. And here comes Eddie Murray, and he grabs Albert, and he says, you get your ass to first base. We just hit Kirby Puckett in the face. You know, that's the way the game's played. And so he, that was it, you know, and that was the end of the story. But it was just – that was just kind of the way the game was um, where guys, you know, you, you retaliated. And there was kind of unwritten rules where you didn't, you know, show guys up and stuff like that. And if you think back, I mean, if you look back on that, that kind of brought excitement to the game where the, where mm -hmm. the players were policing it and the fans were kind of into it, you know, and the fans were like expecting it to happen. And I know it's dangerous and, and somewhat volatile and sometimes uncalled for, um, you know, uh, yeah, there's just so many funny stories we have back then, but you know, nowadays it's, it's just much cleaner and safer and healthier game. And I think guys are hanging out more at Starbucks and back when the, in those days guys were hanging out at the bar and drinking beer yep. in the clubhouse, talking about baseball and, and learning about how to get guys out and, and get on base. Do you ever have a guy rush the mound where you're like, Oh shit, I gotta go. I gotta go save him. Um, no, it, it never, it never happened. You know, you can check on YouTube. I had an incident with Albert again. And um, when I was with the angels, we hit Albert bell after he hit three home runs and he refused to go to first base and turned around and said, I'm not going to first base. The umpire said, you have to go to first base. And Albert goes, no, I'm not going to first base. He looks at me and he goes, you go out there and tell him to throw me something I can hit. And I knew Albert was a smart guy. He was a very intelligent man. And he yeah. did the New York crossword times, uh, puzzle every day and this whole bit. And so I threw him for a loop. I said, Hey, Albert, he said, um, 
I speak a little Spanish, but I don't speak Japanese. I don't think he's going to know what, what I'm saying, you know, and I'm trying to talk like I'm, you know, really get, letting him have it. And you could see he kind of got <laughs> flustered. Like, what did he just say? You know, and then his bench, his coach and manager come out. And so he eventually goes to first base, but fortunately, um, no, I was very fortunate. I'd been in some bench clearing. Oh, wait, I take that back. I did have a play where um, Chan Ho Park was hitting and bunted and Tim Belcher got the ball and tagged him a little bit too hard and, and said something and Chan Ho Park steps back and karate kicked him. And so oh, I ended up on the bottom of the pile of that game, but um, yeah, never had to, to no, no pit hitter ever got to my pitcher, thankfully, other than uh, Chan Ho Park. So wow. I guess that's good. Karate yeah. kicked him. <laughs> yeah, he did. He karate kicked him. And, uh, and Belcher stayed in the game and pitched, you know, it was like, it was like no big deal. I mean, just slugging it out and the whole bit, yeah. you know, everybody was all it cleared it out. Chanho Park got ejected and, and uh, the game went on, but, and I hit a grand slam that game. And, um, and so did Devon White and we ended up losing that game, but it was, uh, yeah. So different times. Very good. That's great. Good stuff. It's been awesome, Maddie. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Tyler, Chris. Cannot thank you enough. I think there's a lot of great stuff in this episode that our, our listeners will be able to, to unpack on this one and stuff. And then um, just again, a quick reminder, we can follow you at Twitter at uh, WallbagWBA on, on Twitter. Uh, what about Facebook? I didn't, I didn't throw that one out there. Yeah, Wallbeck Baseball, and uh, same thing on Instagram, Wallbeck Baseball. If you if you click on that, and uh, and check out my my uh, WallbeckBaseball.com, and then I'm coming out with a new website here soon too, uh, for drills for coaches and and other content to help empower players, and uh, and hopefully remove some of the distortion that's out there because there's so much information. So hopefully everybody Beautiful. can check that out. Yeah, very good. Absolutely, we'll do. Anything else that you want to? leave us with or no i just you know guys it's great talking baseball and catching and i appreciate what you guys are doing online and always looking to get better and and you guys are popping out some great content so uh i just just appreciate having the chance to to sit down and jam with you guys awesome well we can't thank you enough appreciate your time and again thanks for uh for all the great uh points and and, and drills and content that you provided here with us yeah, my pleasure. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Have awesome. a good night.